Just a couple weeks ago, I was looking through notes on my phone, and I found a note that I had written when I was out to lunch with him. He was excited to give me directions on how to care for our new betta fish. <laughs> There's going to be a time to visit with the family and pay your respects this afternoon at the Cavanaugh Patterson Funeral Home in Media. But I wanted to take a moment to address this because it is a tragic event that deeply impacts our community of faith. And it's really crucial that we honor God with how we process this as a community. So there's three areas I wanted to speak to, God, each other, and then the O'Connor family. So first, as you think about this as it relates to God, this is an opportunity for you to take your thoughts captive. In other words, when you think about Kai's passing, you pray. You pray for God's mercy on this dear family. You pray for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven for everyone who's been touched by this tragedy. As we go through painful trials in our lives, we really need to learn to, to see God not through our circumstances, but that we would know his character through his word and we would understand our circumstances in light of that. We need to learn to interpret God's providence in light of his love rather than interpreting his love based on our experience of his providence. Number two, with each other, it really matters how we go through this as a community. That means avoiding gossip about it or speculation amongst ourselves that we wouldn't say anything to one another that we would not say with Kevin and Iris present. We want to be careful that we honor God with how we respond to this and our dear brother and sister, that we would really go through this as a family together. And finally, caring for them. We want to be faithful to pray for them, to love them, to support them in whatever ways that they need, the reality is it's going to be a long and painful grief for them. And we want to be committed to walking with each other for the long haul and all the worst experiences of life, even as we celebrate blessings together. You know, celebrating the blessings is easy, but walking through these really hard situations over the long haul requires love and patience and perseverance, things that we can only have when the Holy Spirit is at work among us. And I really long for us as a church to show a watching world what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Jesus to one another in the midst of tragedy. So may God give us the grace to honor him and love our, our, the O'Connor family as we go through this. Uh, the elders and diaconate are here for you, our deacons and deaconesses, as you process the grief. We're going to have an opportunity at the end of the service for anybody who wants to come forward for prayer with one of our leaders to do so. Please join with me in prayer. Think of these words of Jesus from Revelation 1. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, as we come before you with our hearts heavy, we thank you, Jesus, that you have conquered death. Yes. 
and that you hold the keys to death and Hades. We thank you that we have an invitation to come before your throne of grace with boldness because of what Jesus has done. We thank you for the hope that we have, that assurance that Jake just read for us, that we have peace with you because of the sacrifice of your beloved son. We thank you that we are forgiven and justified. We are crying out, Lord, for mercy for the O'Connor family. We pray that you would fill them afresh, Holy Spirit, that they would know your presence as the comforter, that in the midst of this sudden grief, they would know your arms around them, Lord Jesus. Thank you for, even now, how they're already testifying to how you have shown up for them and brought peace to their hearts. We pray as they go through the time of visitation today that you would strengthen them, empower them, give them grace. Pray that we would be your hands and feet embracing them, supporting them, encouraging, loving them. We pray for strength for them as they have a service later in this week with their family. And we pray for your continued empowering of them and grace to them as they process this grief and begin to heal. Lord, would you help us as your church to love them well, to honor you with how we interact with one another? Would you help us to trust you more and more in the midst of this kind of painful tragedy? God, we want to not see you through our circumstances. We want to see you according to your promises, who you are, and what you've done. And Lord, we, we bring before you as well Bob and Bev Sella as they continue to mourn the passing of Bob's brother Len on Christmas Eve. Lord, would you bring healing to their hearts? Would you give Bob grace as he oversees Len's affairs? Would you bring comfort? to them and to Len's daughter. Lord, we pray for Nancy McGuire, who's recovering from a shoulder dislocation last week. Lord, would you please touch our sister? Would you bring the healing quickly? We pray that there would not be need for further medical intervention and that uh, the PT that she knows so well, she would, she would practice and it would be effective for her. Lord, we pray for Tom Gilbert with his upcoming knee surgery this week. Lord, would you give the doctors skill? Would you help them? And we pray for uh, a full recovery without any infection and that he would be back on his feet soon. Lord, we continue to cry out to you on behalf of our sister Joan. Pray that it would be effective, that you would touch her and bring healing. God, thank you for her desire to re-engage here. And Lord, we pray that you would make that path clear. Uh, of what she can handle. Lord, thank you so much for her heart. We thank you for this family. God, we continue now as we are in the transition. Uh, we pray for this associate uh, pastor search. You know our needs, and so we are we're just going to keep banging on your door until you provide someone, but we pray that you would do that soon. Uh, but we want to wait on you and trust you. Uh, we're waiting for the man that you've chosen, and we want to thank you now for your timing in that provision. And Lord, as we have your word taught throughout this building in the last hour and now with the kids downstairs and with the preaching of your word here, 
We're asking for the work of your spirit to take these truths, to apply them to our hearts, that we would see you rightly and that we would rejoice to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are beginning a series this morning from the book of Malachi. That is page 801 if you're using the Pew Bible. And in God's providence, um, weeks ago, I decided to, to preach on this book. And it, the, the very initial passage here that we're going to read wrestles with the question, does God really love us in the midst of trials and difficulty? Does God really love us? If you're here visiting with us for the first time, particularly if you're someone investigating the Christian faith, we're really glad that you've come out this morning. And I know that one of the biggest arguments, if you think of you know, some of these new atheists like Richard Dawkins and uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, they would argue both because of the behavior of God's people, and Malachi will address that in later weeks, but also just the circumstances of life in a fallen, broken world. How could there be a God if things are so messed up? So we acknowledge that that is a significant barrier to overcome, but as you'll see, um, God's word speaks to it. So I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever." Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We're going to look at three points. I've got a simple outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at the dispute, the evidence, and then finally our answer from God. Uh, so there is an outline there, as I mentioned. You'll also notice that I have included some discussion questions. My plan going forward is I want to give you some questions each week to take with you so that as you are in the car ride going home, as you go out to lunch with one another, you can talk about the content of the sermon and how it applies to your life. James, war James 1 warns us about hearing and not acting. And we don't want to be people who are hearers who forget, but doers who act. Um, so please take advantage of those. So to start off, there, there is a dispute. And the book of Malachi is organized around six disputes the people of God have. And that's why I titled this sermon series, Questioning God. But before we start here, you need to understand the context. So very briefly, I'm going to give you a light speed version of Israel's history. Um, after the reign of Solomon in 931 BC, there was a schism 
And so Israel split into two separate nations. You had Israel to the north and Judah in the south. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. They were conquered and they were taken into exile. Judah hung on a little longer, but then they were conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C. Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, and they too were then sent into exile, scattered all around the Babylonian Empire. By 539, the Persians had conquered Babylon, so now they were the ruling power, and King Cyrus gave a decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland. So they returned with great zeal and anticipation. The prophets had talked about this. There was going to be a restoration of the Davidic monarchy. So they were longing to return to this former glory. The temple was rebuilt around 516. They had started it and then stopped and then finally completed it in 516 B.C., And now Malachi is writing decades later. Scholars guess that it's probably between 450, 430 B.C., somewhere in there, roughly a contemporary of Nehemiah. Now, one other note on authorship here, because you see a little footnote if you have your Bible open, uh, that Malachi in Hebrew means my messenger. So there's a little bit of a debate among scholars. Is Malachi an actual person Or is it kind of an anonymous writer? Because there is no Malachi that shows up anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, I would say Jewish, ancient Jewish sources and early Christian sources both cite Malachi as an actual individual. Uh, But what is most important, regardless, even if it's an anonymous source, is that we receive it as it was given, that we would receive it in the same way as the word of the Lord to us. And there is a lot that this book written almost 2,500 years ago has to say to us, as we'll see. Uh, The word oracle in verse 1 can also be translated as burden. So it is an ominous word. It's portending bad news, suggestive of judgment. Students, it's like sitting in class and the phone ringing and the teacher saying, you go to the principal's office. It's that kind of word. Or your phone ringing and your boss saying, I want you to see in my office right now. Those are generally not good news conversations. But look at the very first thing that the Lord says in verse 2. I have loved you. This is really critical. It's not judgment, but affirmation. And let me just, quick application Um, people need to know God's love and they need to know your love before you ever convict them of sin. Before you ever challenge someone, they have to know that you love them. And that's that's what God does here. So, So what is going on? It is a period of profound discouragement. As I said, you saw on that slide earlier, they have been resettled in the land for a long time. The temple has been rebuilt, but the high hopes of this return to power and status and glory in the world that they experienced under King David and King Solomon never happened. They were continuing to live under the thumb of pagan rulers. They had 
promises from the prophets that the nations were going to stream to them. Instead, they were being ruled over by the nations. Um, And so they're doubting. They remain an insignificant political backwater subject to the sways of whatever is going on among the really great world powers. And so they dispute God's love. It certainly doesn't look like you love us. It doesn't look like we expected. And I I just want to ask you, in what ways is this true for you? As you look at your life, what are the places that you examine and you say, this doesn't look like love? What circumstances in your life are challenging that reality right now? What would you point to and say, see this? How have you loved me? The same way that the Jewish people are saying it. Here's the reality. We all have them. We all have them. And suffering causes doubt. Suffering leads us to question. Because the suffering seems like objective reality. This is a fact. This thing happening in my life. And the promises of God seem like these flimsy, far-off, less real hopes to us. So the first question is, will you be honest about that? Will you be honest with the wrestling and submit to God? Many people either choose not to be real with the struggle and have a very kind of saccharine, surfacey Christianity, or in the face of suffering, they just reject God and go their own way. The Bible's inviting us to be honest with the challenge, but surrender, seeing him for who he truly is. In fact, Jacob was renamed Israel after an all-night wrestling match. Some of you might remember this. Israel means one who wrestles with God. So if you are someone who believes, who is then part of Israel, we'll talk about that a little bit later, that means if you're honest, you're one who wrestles with God. So that's the dispute. What is the evidence that God is presenting here? He counters their claim by saying, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So again, you need to understand the history here. Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac, Abraham's son. You had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or the the patriarchs of Israel. The Edomites, you see mentioned, are... The, the descendants of Esau. So they were basically the cousins, distant, distant cousins of Israel. But now, hundreds, hundreds of years later, there is bitterness and animosity, and for good reason. Edom aligned itself with Babylon when Babylon came and conquered them. In fact, if you look at Psalm 137, they cheered on the demise of Judah. Psalm 137 says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites... The day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. You you get the, the sense that they are just reveling in the downfall of Judah and the destruction that Babylon brought. And so what is God's response? 
Compare your life to the Edomites. Do you know if I love you? This is what's going to happen to them. He has set himself against them. And he says they will be undone. Not just for a short period of time and then restored. They will be undone permanently. And that's what history records. History records that in the 4th century B.C. they were driven out by Nabataean Arabs and now they no longer exist, right? Nobody's saying I'm, I'm a descendant of Edom anymore in the 21st century. Now, let me just pause to acknowledge this is a, this is a hard word. Uh, we don't like to think about God having hate, right? But I want to challenge you that if he didn't deal with evil, if he didn't really care about justice, he would not be good. God's hatred is a holy revulsion against sin. So it's, it's not like humans' hatred. It's uncontaminated by malice or bitterness towards someone. It's basically a rejection of everything that is counter to who he is. This is so opposite of me. I have to reject it and have it out of my face. Um, Years ago, I, I had a coworker named Vince who was dabbling in the nation of Islam. He was African-American. And we had had many spiritual conversations. And he had a very, I would say, very low view of, of sin and justice. And, and uh, his, his view was basically, of, you know, well, Allah will just forgive. It'll kind of come out in the wash. Pretty, pretty standard view that people have. Or, you know, I'm better than I am bad. Um, and then he watched the movie Amistad about a Spanish slave ship in 1839 where the African captives revolted and they killed their captors. And he talked about how enraging it was. The scenes where there was a slave on the ship beaten to death and the other slaves were, were forced to watch as they were splattered with this man's blood as six slaves were chained together and chained to a boulder and thrown overboard all to drown because they were too much of a burden to keep around. And he recounted watching these things filled with such rage and saying, somebody needs to pay for this. There needs to be some kind of retribution that these things happened. Why do we feel that? Because evil is real, and we are made in the image of God, and because we're made in the image of God, we want justice. We want to see sin dealt with. God's wrath is part of his goodness because he refuses to let evil go unpunished. But the point that, that Malachi is making here is about God's electing love. So again, if you're not familiar with the accounts in, in Genesis, let me take you through a little bit with Jacob and Esau. Why does God hate one and love the other? It's actually a mystery. Um, because neither of them reflect that they're really worthy of his love. 
Their sibling rivalry began in the womb. They wrestled in the womb, and, and Genesis says Rebekah was in anguish because of their wrestling in her womb. Esau was born first. He was a strong guy. He was a man's man. I mean, he was a hairy baby. <laughs> so as I was talking about this with my wife, she pointed me to Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Here's the picture of Esau. He's the hunter. He's the warrior. He's a leader of men. And in the ancient Near East, and if we're honest in our culture this is the picture of the real man. This is the one humanity would choose. But Esau was also impulsive and vengeful. He married multiple women that made his parents crazy. And he despised his birthright. Well, his inheritance as the firstborn, he was willing to trade for a bowl of bean soup. So that's Esau on one hand, in contrast to his boisterous brother, Jacob was quiet and mild-mannered. He liked to cook, and he preferred to stay home in the tents with the women. If you wanted a case study of opposite personality types, you know, a little twin study, you could not find twins that were more opposite than these two guys. But Jacob emerged from the womb clutching Esau's heel. That's what Jacob means, uh, one who, a heel grasper. But in Hebrew slang, it means someone who is a cheat or a swindler. And Jacob lived up to the name. Instead of feeding his famished brother when he came home from hunting, he took advantage of him in that moment of weakness. And he said, yeah, I'll give you some of this bean soup if you give me your inheritance. Now, Esau is rightly condemned in Scripture for his folly, but have you thought about how opportunistic and conniving Jacob was? I mean, who of you, if a family member came to you starving and you had plenty of food, will say, only for your inheritance, none of my bean soup. And then he's goaded on by Rebekah. So he impersonates his son to his blind and dying father. He, I'm sorry, he impersonates his brother. He's already swindled Esau out of the inheritance, and now he says, I'm going to steal your blessing too, taking everything I can from you. So who would you choose? You've got Jacob or Esau? The point is, neither is a good option. And this brings us to the wonder of what theologians refer to as the doctrine of election. That God chooses whom he's going to shower his love and blessing on, actually completely independent of their worth and their entitlement to it. It is a gift of grace. It's a demonstration of his faithfulness. You know, right from the beginning in Israel's history, you got this passage from Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That feels pretty good. It was not because you were more in number, more than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's about his goodness and character. Uh, I remember reading 1 Corinthians 1 for the first time where Paul writes, you know, not many of you were wise, not many of you were strong, not many of you were wealthy. God chose the weak and foolish things. And I thought, wow, I've got a seat at the table. This is great. God chooses whom he will choose, but he commits himself to us. So it's not about fairness. It's not about who is deserving. Neither Jacob nor Esau deserve God's love and favor, and we can never merit them either. His sovereign choosing is based on his love and his goodness. So one commentator put it like this, that election is the golden thread that is running through all of the Bible because this is the only way that God alone is exalted, that God alone is glorified. And I want you to think about this. You know, when we are wounded by another, all of us want justice. We want to see that dealt with. But when we fail, all of us want mercy. If we are focused on fairness, it is just self-referential. You know, it's my perspective on what I deserve. Fair is the forbidden four-letter word in the White House. It's, somebody got it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more biblical idea than, uh, um, the, the idea of justice is what is more biblical. The idea of, of what is fair is actually against the gospel. And I just want to point you again quickly to, to the beginning of, in verse 1, where it says, the word of the Lord to Israel. This is God's choosing. This is significant because, again, remember, the, the nation has been divided. Malachi is anticipating the reunion, the reunification of the people of God, but I would say it's even bigger than that. It's a community, it's a, uh, the community of God, which where he ends In verse 5, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Malachi is anticipating there is a day coming when God is going to choose people who are from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Malachi is anticipating the bringing together of the full people of God as Israel. And that's why this passage actually is quoted in Romans 9 to 11, that's the longest treatise on election in, in the Bible. And Paul's ultimate point is that true Israel is all of humanity who has been called and chosen and loved by God. So let me, let me close with this. In Jesus, God has forever answered the question, how have you loved us? My last point is, It is he, Jesus, is our answer from God. In other words, it's his answer to us, the cross of Jesus. Jesus set aside his glory to enter into into the suffering of life in this fallen world. He left his majesty to be abased for us, to be misunderstood, mocked, and mistreated. You know, we just celebrated Christmas the creator of the universe, humbling himself to become an infant. 
called Emmanuel, God with us. This is the promise of his coming. And if that's all God did was to become human, to understand our experience, that would be unbelievable love and care toward us as his creatures. That he was just willing to understand what it's like to be a creature. But the reality of the cross is it's infinitely greater than that. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus became human in order to go to the cross. We struggle with the idea that God can be angry and bring judgment. But Jesus shows us that God himself takes on the judgment and condemnation that we deserve. Isaiah 59 puts it like this. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. There was no one who could atone. There was no one else who could make it right, who could bring redemption. So God did it himself. Jesus became like the Edomites described here, that he would be laid waste, he would be crushed, he would be torn down for us. Why would he do this? It brings us back to the main question. Do you love me? Jesus is God's resounding answer of yes to that question. I so love this broken, painful world that I sent my own son into it to redeem it so that we can be reconciled, the father says. And Jesus, God, is proving his love that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And this is really critical for the Christian life. I mentioned this earlier in my comments before uh, our pastoral prayer We need to interpret God's providence, the circumstances in our lives, in light of his love, rather than trying to interpret his love based on our experience of his providence, based on our experience of these circumstances. So let me come at this by giving you a negative and flipping it around positive. I know you know, like me, what it's like to rehearse offenses, to keep replaying a hard conversation, to rehearse slights and offenses against you, to feed on unforgiveness and bitterness. I know, like me, you know what that's like. But what we do negatively, it's really critical that we start doing positively. And what I mean is we need to start rehearsing the hope of the gospel to ourselves. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, rehearsing the hope that, yes, I have done all these different things wrong, but I'm forgiven. Yes, these people have done wrong things to me, but I've been forgiven. I'm accepted There's all kinds of ways I need to change, but I am already accepted in the beloved. There are ways that people have harmed me, 
but I have been shown mercy. And he wants to empower us to show mercy. He wants us to know, we're going to talk about this more next week, what it means to be adopted as his children. I have adopted you into my family. I have reconciled you. We need to keep reminding ourselves what is true of God, that he's demonstrated his love in giving his son. And this is why we need to celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly, because you need something tangible to be reminded of what is true. You get to hold a piece of bread, and you tell yourself, as real as this thing is in my hand, God has done this for me. As I can taste this cup and feel it flowing down my throat, that is as real as who God is and what Jesus has done for me. Um, Where are you struggling with doubt because of your circumstances? Where are you struggling with guilt and shame because of behaviors? This meal feeds us. It helps in our healing. It reminds us who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and importantly, where we're headed. Um, Do you believe? Come and be strengthened. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and goodness. God, would you help us to see Jesus high and lifted up? We want to look at all of our experiences. We want the cross to be the lens through which we see our lives. The cross and the empty tomb. So that we would know both the forgiveness of our sins, your reconciling work on the cross, but the hope of the one who's been raised from the dead. Lord, would you do that work in us and would you strengthen us now by this meal? I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me invite the elders to come forward. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is a a family meal. It's an open table so that if you are someone who has professed faith in Christ, you're from a different faith tradition, you're a member of a different church, you are welcome to come. But if you, if you have not accepted Jesus, if you are not yet following him, we would urge you to not partake of these elements. There is no um, scrutiny if you pass the plate by. We, we want you to take this moment to ask God, are you real? Are these things true? and to engage with him. Please hold the bread and we'll partake together. Listen to this, Psalm 107, it's a longish psalm, but I think beautifully captures who God is compared to who we are. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of the Lord. They had spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. <laughs> 